0: last few weeks we've studied Paul's commendation for the believers in verse 15 through 17 which reads Ephesians 5 15 through 17 look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is Church, we are to be careful how we walk, how we live, mindful. We are to be wise, we are to be good stewards, good managers of these days that God gives us under the sun. Every day he wakes you up, opens your eyes, is a gift of him, a provision of him. He doesn't owe you today, he doesn't owe you tomorrow. What are we doing to worship him, to make much of his name, to live these days, not for the temporary things that will, that will be gone so fast, but for the eternal things? We are not to act as fools. We do not act as those who know what is the right thing to do, but then choose to do the wrong thing. Instead, we are to grow in our soul his will of command for us. What has he told us to do and to not do? We do this so that we can live wisely. Another thing we do not do is give ourselves to worldly or fleshly indulgences, including drunkenness. But instead we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we will study today. I pray that we come to know and understand God's revealed will for all things so that we cannot be wise in our own eyes or, or given to any other authority, prescription or tradition or experience, but to God's word above all else. Now, I realize that the topic of alcohol and drunkenness is a sensitive one for many Many in the room are listening online because of the experiences that you've had related to it. But let me remind us of an important point before we jump in today. Jesus Christ is Lord over every area of life. It's not what I believe or what you believe that determines what we should think, say, or do in a particular situation. It's not what you feel you ought to do, nor it is even how you feel the Lord is leading you, apart from Scripture, that determines our actions. It is what does God's Word say that is to always determine our convictions, our beliefs, and our actions, on any matter, Sometimes we can be prone to give too much authority or say to our feelings, our conscience, or experiences. And We have to remember that our conscience, our experiences, our feelings must be submitted to the authority of God's Word. Scripture teaches us to distrust or challenge our own feelings, our own reasoning, our own self-determined ways. In places like Proverbs three seven, be not wise in your own eyes. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six: Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Isaiah forty seven ten: Your wisdom and your knowledge lead you astray. Isaiah fifty five eight: My thoughts are not your thoughts; neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord rather than trusting our own thoughts, our own ways, God calls you to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. For in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2:3 Is there freedom? Is there liberty to choose where the scriptures are silent? Yes, absolutely. But these choices are still guided by God's Word, by the Gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So in all things, we who belong to Christ need to be quick to go to Scripture, to to study God's Word and understand what it says according to Scripture, not according to tradition, in order to shape our thinking. And to guide our decision making in life. So I ask you who might come to this topic of alcohol and drunkenness. Of being filled with the Holy Spirit. To let the word of God shape you. To shape your convictions. And to lead you forward unto ways of the Lord. Unto greater maturity in Christ in all things. With that let's dig in. Ephesians 5.18, Paul continues, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Church scripture is clear that overindulgence in alcohol, also known as drunkenness, is a sin. Drunkenness is being intoxicated to the point that you are losing or have lost control. Other places we see this in Scripture, in addition to our passage today, are places like Luke twenty-one thirty-four that says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, Notice Luke's words here are similar to Paul's words in the, in the section that we find ourselves in, in Ephesians. Luke says, look uh, to watch yourself. And Paul said, look carefully then how you walk. Church, there is a mindfulness, a carefulness that we need to have when it comes to things in life that can quickly get away from you. It doesn't mean that they can't be engaged But we must watch ourselves. We must look carefully how we walk. Or folly comes upon us like a trap, suddenly. Other direct passages we see in Scripture that condemn drunkenness. Another place we see this is in Romans 13.13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. The ramifications and consequences of drunkenness to our life or another's life are serious, church. The Bible is filled with examples, and you likely have examples in your own life as to the hurt and the hardship, the fallout, That comes from drunkenness. A few examples of the life consequences that result from drunkenness that we find in Scripture. Again, this is just a few. Uh, I think we'll have them on the screen here incest, violence and abuse, adultery, mockery and brawling, poverty, failed leadership. Hallucinations, hallucinations, injustice, murder, gluttony and poverty, vomiting, staggering or an inability to walk uprightly, madness, nakedness, inattention, absence escapism and depression. Too many of you know what it's like to have a parent or maybe a spouse or a close friend who is not present or who is an abuser verbally or physically. Many of you have seen how drunkenness equals loss of job, loss or damage of property, jail time, loss or breakdown of relationships, loss of respect from others, how it hinders or contradicts the gospel testimony of those who claim to belong to Christ. Some of you have known the trappings of drunkenness. In a fleshly attempt to cover pain and hurt, you also know how miserable and ineffective it is in helping to improve one's life. This is what sin does, church. It takes the good gifts of God and it turns them into life breakdown, consequence. Into idols of the heart. Into gluttony. Into enslavement and addiction. Into life ruin. Is there ever a permissible time by which we can indulge in alcohol to the point of drunkenness? The Bible is clear to say there is not. Overindulgence or enslavement to alcohol is sin and therefore is something not to be practiced ever. To say it another way, no celebration, no painful event in your life, no influence of others should ever justify what God calls sin. There's never an okay moment to drink yourself numb. This is a fleshly, selfish, destructive way to navigate this hard but short life. Paul adds another layer in our passage when he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. When Paul says drunkenness is debauchery, he's pointing out that drunkenness is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. That's what debauchery is. It's, it's any way that we indulge in the ways the flesh wants. It could be sexual, it could be physical, it could be mental or emotional. It's looking to be satisfied only in the horizontal way or means instead of in Christ alone, in who we give ourselves to. This was Paul's warning in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 19, just the former chapter before we're at now. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is debauchery. It's foul sin. Church, we must see that drunkenness is a serious offense in God's eyes. As you read Scripture, notice how it is commonly listed among other fleshly vices that do not honor God but instead they earn judgment and condemnation for example galatians 5:19 through 21 now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to see clearly with me that the one who is given to drunkenness instead of given to Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the deepest consequence of them all. Maybe you're thinking, but this is my sin struggle. This is my reality. I give myself to drunkenness. Instead of looking to Christ to be your help and your comfort, you're looking to the bottle to be a help and a comfort. If this is you, Hear me clearly today that there is good news. There is an overcoming power in Jesus Christ. God is full of amazing, saving grace. Grace you don't earn. A grace he's not obligated to give, but he gives it to many. There is real freedom that you can finally have from addiction or overindulgence to things like alcohol this freedom is possible in Christ I know how deep the hole can feel not because I have personally been there in a struggle of overindulgence and alcohol myself but because of 20 years of pastoral ministry I have had a front row seat in many ways closer than just about anyone else to meet with people in their darkest hours related to this sin struggle. I have literally sat in the dirt with grown men as they cry, as they've completely wrecked their life. I've driven the city limits in the middle of the night only to find a friend passed out in a dark parking lot while his beautiful wife and sweet kids lay awake at home crying, wondering if dad's coming home tonight. I've sought these people out in their darkest hours to plead with, to plead with them to seek the Lord who is the power to truly be free of these things. Some might say, you don't understand the depths of my enslavement to this. And I would say in response, I may not understand. But you don't need me to get well. You need Jesus. You might feel it is impossible for you to kick your addiction. Your fleshly cling to these things but what is impossible with man is possible with god luke 18:27 and if the son sets you free you will be free indeed john 8:36 Let me show you this in real time by the testimony of those in the room. Brothers and sisters, you know who you are, and I need to ask you to respond in this moment with me by way of testimony. Listen carefully. If you at one point in your life were so given to indulgence in alcohol or drugs that it was ruining your life, and yet by the power of Christ at work in you, you are now free of this sinful overindulgence, and are thriving in Christ. If this is your testimony, will you please stand up right now? There's, I know there's many of you that this fits. Many who aren't here first hour will be here second hour. Please remain standing for a moment. If you struggle with drunkenness, or overindulgence to pain medications or other substances, if you struggle with addiction to alcohol, if you are prone to abuse liberties like alcohol, know that we, the shepherds of Disciples Church and other group leaders here and many fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are standing around you, want to walk with you in your fight against what God calls sin. Know that Christ can give you victory over these struggles in the gospel. And we are joyful to help you along the way. Thank you uh, for standing. You can sit down now. Praise God for victory in Christ. Amen. Amen. Also know that because we love you, we take sin seriously. So it's our conviction to join with Paul in saying, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. If this is you, then you need to repent and seek accountability and pursue to honor God in these things. Often what I've found is that this kind of struggle is one that people keep hidden deep in their lives. Sometimes so well that there are going to be seasons where the people of your own household don't even know that you're medicating or turning to these fleshly things to to try to find a way. I pray you would repent. I pray you would confess your sin. That you would grab hold of a trusted brother or sister and invite them in to say, here's where I'm at. And I, and I want to do business with this. I've been blessed just In the last weeks, that kind of repentance, confession's happening. I I won't share with you, but I've had brothers and sisters reach out in recent days, weeks, to say, hey, the Lord's been bringing conviction, something we worked on in Scripture recently, and it's time I do business with it. Here's the changes I'm going to make. Will will you walk with me? Will you put people in my life that I can lean on uh, for this? Praise God. Now, before I move into the next half of our text, it's important that I clarify what this passage is not saying. As far too many Christians and too many churches have naively believed or irresponsibly presented what God's Word says about alcohol outside of drunkenness by wrongfully stating that any kind of enjoyment of alcohol is a sin or that true and faithful Christians should not partake in it for the sake of their own testimony and influence. It's been an important area of reformation here at Disciples Church. In my own life, as I've sought to be a, 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 a well-disciplined expositor of God's Word, um, like I said at the top of the sermon, we cannot submit to our own preferences or experiences as the standard or the call on our life in Christ. But instead we submit to God's word above all else as the standard. What does God's word say about these things that it would lead and instruct and direct us to speak rightly, to act rightly? Some have wrongfully concluded that because drunkenness is a sin, then all drinking is a sin. This is simply not what God's Word teaches, and you need to not have this view, because it's inaccurate. To combat this gross misunderstanding, I want to give you a pass through God's Word this morning, uh, and a reminder of some of these things. A few years back, we spent some time on this. At the end of the hour, I'll give you an opportunity to actually ask for some additional audio and teaching. Great depths to this topic that God's Word spends. Very worthy topic to understand what God's Word says. First, to look at this, uh, to look to the Old Testament first. Um, It is clear in the Old Testament that the same wine or strong drink that some sinfully overindulged in unto drunkenness, therefore, it's able to make you drunk. Some like to claim that many of these references were of wine that was non-alcoholic. It can't be. The same word, the same reference is used for people who are overindulging sinfully. So it's able to do that. That this same wine or strong drink is referred to as a blessing from God to be enjoyed. Even to be used to worship and honor God. Consider with me just a couple places. We don't have time to do it all. Number one, Melchizedek, who is a typological figure of Christ and the priest of the most high God gave wine to Abraham as a blessing Genesis 14.18 because Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was the priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abram I God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand another example is the fermented wine called yayin yin in this particular text, the original text, is also commanded by God to be brought to him as an offering in worship. Exodus 29, 38-40, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year, old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. In the Old Testament we read the word shakar, which means strong drink, uh, that some sinfully use to get drunk uh, is commanded to be offered as a drink offering to the Lord in worship. And as we saw is to be joyfully consumed as part of the rejoicing tithe unto the Lord. Uh, fermented wine and/or drink is said to be a gracious blessing from God that he instructs his people to enjoy. For example, Deuteronomy 14, 26: Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Psalm 104, 14 through 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. A couple of New Testament examples we see in this quick pass through Scripture. Um, Jesus enjoyed wine in moderation. The Lord himself was falsely accused of being a glutton and a drunkard only because he publicly ate and drank. Understand that while Jesus did drink publicly, he did this without sinning without sinful overindulgence. Matthew eleven eighteen through 19 John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say that he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Again, understand, Jesus is sinless. So, the, so these are accusations only. Accusations by fallen man. <clears throat> Just because Jesus ate bread and drank wine with sinners doesn't make him one. A good side note for the context of some of these accusations, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus are both cited here for their message, not uh, for their message, but for their lifestyle, That the accusers focused on. See John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Who lived in the wilderness. And neither ate nor drank wine. He ate locusts and wild wild honey. Jesus was a Nazarene. Not a Nazarite. But a Nazarene. One from Nazareth. And he did eat bread and drink wine. There's a difference in what their upbringing. And some of their practices. Another example we see in Scripture is in John chapter 2. The the same wine, the Greek word oinos, that makes one drunk, is capable of doing that. The same word used in our Ephesians 5.18 passage today. Jesus made that wine. He turned water into wine. In plenty. Scripture is clear. He made much of it to be served at this big wedding party. Understand, Jesus didn't just make wine. He made more wine. If any kind of enjoyment of alcohol is forbidden by God, then why would Jesus do this? See with me that Christ does not condone drunkenness here. If so, he would contradict his own holy scriptures. But he's giving approval for lawful consumption of alcoholic beverages, in moderation, in largely attended social context, like this, like a wedding. Paul later in the New Testament prescribes wine for some physical help to Timothy. Uh, the same oinos, the same word used in our passage Ephesians five eighteen, do not be drunk with wine. Paul prescribes uh, for medicinal value. First Timothy five twenty three, no longer. Drink only water, he says to Timothy, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Again, wine in moderation, not unto drunkenness, which is sin. Church leaders are permitted in Scripture to drink only in moderation. The same oinos, that is the capacity to inebriate, again our word in Ephesians 5.18, was not forbidden for church elders and deacons, was to be enjoyed in moderation. 1 Timothy 3, 2-3 Therefore an overseer, elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, <clears throat> respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. 1 Timothy 3, 8 Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Finally, the fruit of the vine referenced uh, in Scripture as the cup that the Lord prescribed to the disciples and and then therefore to us, the New Covenant Church, to be used as a symbol in the Lord's Supper. As we just partook earlier today, Uh, that symbol was a glass of fermented wine taken from the Passover meal. There are many texts to show this. Again, I don't have time to mention it all, but I... I will mention uh, a quick pass on a passage we're all familiar with. 1 Corinthians 11.21, Paul is rebuking the New Testament church for how they're doing the Lord's Supper. Part of that rebuke was that some were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a drunken state as a result of it. They were overindulging in the wine. Paul's admonishment of them, in his admonishment, he doesn't say they're to not use wine in the Lord's Supper. Paul's correction is directed towards their sinful abuse or overindulgence in wine. He calls them to go back to what the Lord instructed them to do and do that rightly. Church, the truth is God gave alcoholic beverages as a good gift and they in and of themselves are not evil. Nothing God created in and of itself is evil. It is Sin in man that does evil with what God has made. We must be so careful to not let promoters of certain ideologies or practices say um, that the scriptures say something they do not. Before moving on, let me just touch on a couple of the popular positions that come out of this. Um, The prohibition uh, movement those who would say the Scriptures prohibit any drinking, um, they would say that um, because the Bible prohibits, condones drunkenness, drinking alcoholic beverages can lead to drunkenness, which can lead to other consequences and even death. Therefore, Scripture condemns the drinking of alcoholic beverages. If we follow that same reasoning... Christians would also be forced to conclude that Scripture, that clearly condemns gluttony. Eating food can lead to gluttony, which then leads to other consequences and even death. I would say greater amounts of death due to heart disease than even alcohol-related death. So therefore, we should take this seriously. Scripture then condemns the eating of all food. Right? If we're using that same logic. Or, Scripture condemns the abuse of authority. Parents have abused their authority, which leads to other consequences, and even death. Therefore, Scripture condemns all parental authority. No cheering from the children. (laughs) Do you see how this nonsensical way of thinking is just not biblical? We can't apply this to alcohol and then not apply the same reasoning to something else. It's not what Scripture teaches Human reasoning cannot override how we read and interpret Scripture. We must submit ourselves to Scripture alone and not add anything that we prefer or feel to what God declares. It is not the lawful use of wine or strong drink that is condemned in Scripture. It is the unlawful abuse of wine and strong drink that is condemned. Therefore, the prohibitionist who says drinking is sinful is making unbiblical prescriptions. It's an unbiblical position. Also, Scripture nowhere says that alcohol in and of itself is sinful. Scripture is clear. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but rather that which proceeds from an evil heart that defiles him. Mark seven fifteen. Therefore, wine or any alcoholic beverage that enters the mouth is not evil. But rather, our use of it, contrary to Scripture, is what is sinful and a result of what proceeds from a sinful heart. Again, there is no material thing that God created that is evil in and of itself. It is the abuse or misuse of it that is evil. Romans 14.14 I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Nothing is unclean in itself. Therefore, since wine and strong drink have been given by God to man to be enjoyed and to honor him with, they may be lawfully enjoyed if they are used and consumed with moderation, received with thanksgiving, and not causing someone you know to struggle to be persuaded to sin. Another view that's risen up over the years is... uh, a conviction to abstain, um, and so and to go so far to, to proclaim that's the way Christians should act. Um, the summary of this position could be something like this: Alcohol is not evil; they'll agree. Drinking is not sinful; they'll agree. Yet it is right and wise and more loving for Christians to refrain from drinking for the sake of their testimony and influence. This Is a pretty popularly held position. I'll. All state, it's unbiblical. It's an unbiblical prescription. Those who have held or prescribed this position say, as a matter of love, all Christians should abstain. This is essentially the higher road position. The thought is, just in case it might be used in a wrong way, just in case someone somewhere might be persuaded to sin by it, we shouldn't do it. We can take a higher road than what Scripture teaches us, in order to be extra careful, extra loving. What constitutes a good Christian witness must be judged, again, by Scripture, and not by culture or personal preferences or logic. Does a Christian necessarily project a biblical Christian witness to the world by practicing total abstinence when there is no biblical warrant to do so? The critical answer is no. The central proof to understand why abstinence is not needed, again, is the witness and practice of our Lord himself and his disciples. We know that they continue to use alcoholic beverages despite the fact that sinful men abused them to their own destruction at that time around Jesus. Sin was perpetuated in sinful men. And despite the fact that they were falsely testified of being drunk even when they weren't. Those false accusations did not change the practice of Jesus and the disciples. No Christian would think of accusing the infinitely wise and perfect and holy Son of God of being unwise or ungodly in that situation. So then why do we move that prescription over to Christians in the modern day? If one believes Jesus should have abstained from all wine because he was falsely accused of being a drunkard, then likewise, watch this, he should have abstained from all bread because he was also falsely accused of being a glutton. It is simply an over-prescription to say that because some would struggle with it, you should lovingly not participate in it. This would simply not that we would simply not do many of the everyday things we do all the time, if this were the case. Uh, it is permissible, the abstentionist would say, it is permissible for you to exercise your liberty within certain man-made limitations, such as only drinking in the confines of your own home, or in other private circumstances. But you should not drink in public, for you simply don't know who you might cause to stumble Church see with me that this is an unbiblical prescription. Again, not even Jesus and his disciples fulfilled their example, this example. The reality is if this were the standard that we truly held to, this was the loving and faithful thing to do, Christians would hardly do anything in public. Your driving legally could somehow be an influence on someone to drive illegally. Your consumption of entertainment the food you would eat, you know, someone struggling with gluttony, and they see you eating a double cheeseburger, and man, the cheese was melting over the side, and, and it was just so good. So now that person's persuaded to go be a glutton. Now, think of all of these things in life we just would not do if you applied the same reasoning to these areas. Consider with me that the biblical and loving action is, is to be willing to refrain if you're with someone that you know to struggle. Right? It, it would not be okay to sit with someone who you know is struggling with gluttony, and 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 you know they're they're pulling out their meal of moderation, and you're slapping down your big triple cheeseburger in front of them, and you know and wiping your mess. No, you would be loving to them to join them in a the journey of that struggle, to maybe to abstain or pull back. Same thing. You know, a brother or sister is struggling with the bottle, or getting off the bottle, then it would be good and loving to refrain in that situation from exercising your liberty as a way of coming alongside them. But but that's a person you know is struggling. You can't take that so far to say, you can never do this publicly, you never know who's watching. Again, you would never do any of these things publicly if that was the case. That's not where uh, Scripture takes us. The biblical permission of permissible moderation, is what we must consider. The biblical position on this matter is one of permission to enjoy in moderation, if one so chooses. God gave alcoholic beverages as a good gift. And the scriptures are clear that there are many ways that we can enjoy them in good God-honoring ways. Therefore, we should have no biblical restriction or resistance to do so in moderation. The power of the gospel at work in us can and should make a way for anyone to enjoy God's good gifts. In Christ, we're not bound by sin anymore. And therefore, not mastered by it anymore. You don't have the power of Christ at work in you to overcome sin. And then continue to call yourself um, enslaved to old vices. In Christ, we have the power and the freedom to enjoy His good gifts and the desire to exercise that liberty in such a way that doesn't cause someone that we know who's struggling to stumble. Hear me again. Just because you can eat meat doesn't mean you need to. It's when you start to say that not eating meat is somehow more God-honoring that you've crossed the line. Just because you can drink in moderation also doesn't mean you need to. As long as the way you think about it and the way you talk about it is biblically accurate and responsible. A couple of practical takeaways before we move on. Number one, please don't feel the need to begin drinking in moderation if you don't now. Right. This is not, I'm not getting a kickback you know, from the alcohol industry for this. I'm simply trying to help us understand what God's Word says rightly about these things. This exposition of Scripture is not in any attempt to convince you to enjoy alcohol in moderation, but is to help you be strong biblically in your understanding and your conscience on this topic. Number two, I want to ask you, be accountable, like many things in our life in Christ. If you haven't drank much, in the recent past, or maybe you've abused alcohol in the past. Again, not uncommon. But maybe you're considering that now. I would just encourage you to enter into this very carefully, wisely, with discernment, and invite in accountability. Right? Out of the same thing, if you had struggles of of overspending and getting into debt, and maybe you're starting to to be honoring God in that practice, and maybe you're going to move into having access to an opportunity to, you know, it, have a credit card or something. But, but then you would do that with accountability. You would do that in a way that honors the Lord. To not reacquire debt and get back into a, a bad place again. Number three, be mindful of others around you. Like I said before, we should look for ways to inquire with people that we're with. Be aware of our surroundings. Again, this doesn't mean you can't enjoy a drink in public. But it does mean if you're aware of a brother or sister who's present, who's struggling, and you can joyfully set aside your liberty to walk with them, if it's helpful, this is a good thing. And we should long to be that kind of person. Number four, please do not test your limits. The goal is not self-indulgence. It's to honor the Lord. If you feel you've ever had too much to drink or... Maybe you're developing a sinful overindulgence or clinging to alcohol. Uh, Don't let shame stop you from making sound decisions, from pursuing repentance and accountability. Confess your sin to a mature brother and sister. Ask for accountability. Don't drive. Call for a ride. Be willing to set aside drinking, maybe in general, for a season as you regroup your foundation of who you are in Christ. We want to honor God with these things so we're willing to be humble and accountable and repentant. Church, God is glorified when we repent, not when we hide sin, keep a better face on. Drunkenness is a sin and it should be confessed and repented of, not hidden and avoided. Church, I commend you the words of Paul, Philippians 4, 5. Let your moderation be known to all finally just because you can doesn't mean you need to our highest aim is to honor God Paul says it well 1 Corinthians six twelve: all things are lawful for me but not all things are profitable all things are lawful for me but I will not be mastered by anything again a right view of these things not giving them some kind of power that's Uncontrollable, you have the power you need in Christ, right? Not trying to add some kind of extra holiness to people who abstain. No, we honor the Lord to practice and enjoy the things He blesses us with. You need to be careful how we even judge others on this matter in an unbiblical way. How we view alcohol according to Scripture is important, church. If you have a conviction, that's outside of God's Word, then I pray for you to lean in, to study, to grow, to ask questions, to let us walk with you in these things. For the sake of your life, for the sake of your witness and your testimony of God's Word and the Gospel. Church, all of us are accountable to God for our actions. And all of our actions must spring forth from faith. So, listen carefully. For some, faith will lead to affirming alcohol is a good gift, but choosing to personally not drink in moderation. It's okay. For others, faith will lead to enjoying a drink in moderation unto the glory of God. And that's good too. For all of us, we should aim to walk accountably and uprightly in these things, have a biblical conviction and understanding of these things. With that, look with me at Paul's next words in verse 18. For they are critical to how we are controlled and motivated to live this life for God's glory and not our own will. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this final portion of verse 18, we read an imperative from the Apostle. Be filled with the Spirit. We'll get in the depth of part of this verse next week. But for some application as it relates to today. The man or woman who is drunk or given themselves to influences or control, to be controlled by another substance cannot walk straight. It affects their speech. It affects their ability to perform. It leads to nonsense. It leads to irritability when corrected with truth or discipline. They are not given to the Lord in this state, they've given themselves to something else, something far inferior. Something that doesn't bring honor to God and upright living, which others can follow. The person filled with the Spirit has a different testimony. The person filled with the Holy Spirit is the person given to the power and control of God, not to the things He created, not not to the things of man. Christians, this is our power, the Spirit at work. This is our testimony. God is our hope and our prize. May we truly be satisfied in all that God is and look to nothing that he created to fill us or complete us. Christ is enough. A few clarities I'll touch on briefly and then we'll pick it up next week. When Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's not, watch this, He's not commending Christians to acquire something they don't already have. Each of us who are saved possess the entire Holy Spirit from the time we repented and believed. Romans 8, 9-10 You, whoever, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So we're not looking to gain something in the Spirit we don't already have. Second clarity that we need to have here is being filled with the Spirit, as referenced here, is not in relationship to any kind of special miraculous gifting but is in reference to our being under the full control and leadership of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says it well when he says this, An accurate rendering of the Greek verb destroys the widespread charismatic notion that being filled is a one-time emotional experience you initiate, which instantly places you in some inner circle of spiritual maturity, Be filled is actually in the passive voice and indicates that you receive the action. The Holy Spirit is continuously filling you. It is simply another facet of the Spirit's indwelling ministry, which allows you to have a daily, moment-by-moment, effectiveness and fulfillment in your Christian life. In a similar passage, Paul writes in Colossians and says this, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is the word of God. To let the word dwell in us richly is the same as being filled by the Spirit. It is to make room for the influence of the Lord in our life. It is giving our minds to truth and our wills to obedience to God to his will and command. The good goal is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and nothing else. He's enough. Jesus himself was described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Luke 4.1 When selecting deacons, it is highlighted that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts 6.5 British evangelist Henry Verley once said, The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to Him. The reality is that our flesh, church, is at war with the Spirit all the time. Which is why Verley is boggled at the idea of the impact and the testimony of a man fully given to the Spirit. That would be a sight. That would be one worth following and emulating. And yet this is the call on our lives to be filled with the Spirit. That He's in control. You're empowered by Him. You're not looking to create things to to get you right, to get you over the hump, to get you through. Christian, are you committed to being fully given to the Spirit? This is the journey of true Christian maturity. A call on every Christian to not look to anything but God to satisfy us, to empower us, to instruct us, and help us when we're in trouble. The flesh is all too captivated by other powers, other potions, to remedy our woes, to satisfy our longings, and empower us with God-honoring will and works. I'll often check a Christian brother or sister if I hear them say, man, I really need a drink. What is incomplete about the Spirit at work in you where you need a drink? No, you don't need anything. You have Christ. You have the Spirit. That we'd make war with these fleshly ways of thinking. We'd make war with over Clean or or overrunning to these things to make us right, to to get us even. Can you enjoy a drink to the glory of God? Absolutely. But you don't need a drink. There's a big difference. More layers and results of being filled in the Spirit next week as we look to the final words of Paul in chapter 5. I want to pray for us this morning as we respond and worship to our good God. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text and clear teachings of your holy word that help us to understand these things, to help us break through maybe the ideologies of our upbringing, maybe even the churches we were involved in growing up, the ways that we've kind of gathered information or intel or experience informed conclusions. I pray Lord that in all things we are ready to be reformed. That we are ready to be corrected, that we're ready to be brought forth and matured by your word, that we'd be a people given to your holy word and and we as a result would grow, would mature, would would walk in uprightness as we look to honor you in all these things. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, Spirit at work in us to convict us of sin, to give us longing for you and your Word, to um, to give us a, a desire, a will to, to 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 live for your glory, to obey your commands. Lord, I pray that we would. That this would be good news. I'm excited for those who you've ordained to come to a crossroad this morning in some of these areas. That they would really do work with those things. That there'd be cause to truly rejoice in who you are and what you've done and what you're doing. Let the gospel go to work in all these things through us for those you put in our path. We love you. We worship you. Worship you now in unity as the corporate church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.